Hey, everybody. Uh, Dylan here. So I do not know how to scuba dive. I've, I've never taken the lessons. But a few months ago, I got to go to Tarpon Springs, Florida, and get to sort of play at being a professional sponge diver for a day. I didn't have to do a real scuba. I was on a, a kind of oxygen line uh, so that I could go underwater and walk around on the ocean floor, but not have to be fully certified. Anyway, it was a crazy experience. I got to put on this original copper 150-pound dive suit. It was kind of like this astronaut Frankenstein being and slow and heavy walking on the you know bottom of the ocean. I was only 12 feet underwater. But anyway, it was just this incredible experience. And being there deep under the water was like stepping into another universe. It was filled with life and mysterious creatures and things growing. And it was just completely and totally magical. And it got me thinking about all of the strange, incredible wonders that are found underneath the oceans, at the bottom of lakes. And so today, we're joined by the Atlas Obscura Places editors, Jonathan Carey and Michelle Cassidy, who are choosing two stories to tell us that both take place deep underwater. First is Jonathan Carey, who's going to take us to the sunken crosses of Malpighay. Get ready and dive down deep with us under the blue sea of La Palma, Spain. La Palma is a scuba diver's paradise. It's one of the Canary Islands, which are a part of Spain. If you join one of the diving expeditions, you'll probably launch from the southern coast of La Palma and head a little over four miles from the shore. And then it's anchors down, air tanks on, and into the depths of the Atlantic you go. The water is filled with coral reefs. I mean, schools of fish nibble at your fins as you head to your dive point, about 65 feet below the waves. And soon, a few objects begin to appear in the distance, down on the ocean floor. It's a little blurry, but they're handmade for sure. And when you get a little closer, you'll see that these are crosses. 40 stone crosses, and some of them are covered in this, you know, funky underwater plants, reddish in color. These are the sunken crosses of Malpique. And at first glance, it looks like an underwater cemetery. But to get the story of these crosses, you swim back up to the surface, but also back in time. The waters are calm. And that speedboat that you came in, that's gone. And in the distance, you can see two groups of ships sailing towards each other from each side of the horizon. And they're old. I mean, these huge wood frame boats complete with massive sails. That's because it's 1570. You see, one group of boats is carrying a Portuguese missionary named Ignacio de Azevedo. And he's sailing along with 39 other Jesuits. It's July. And Ignacio de Azevedo and the other men are headed toward Brazil to do some missionary work. I mean, for many of them, this is the first time they're undertaking such an adventure. And the traveling party is seven ships with about 70 people in total, including the crew. And here they are, venturing through the waters of the Canary Islands. They're excited. It's the journey of a lifetime. Now, on the other side of the horizon, the other boats are led by a man named Jacques de Soros. 
DeSoros is a pirate. He's French and is a default Protestant. And about 15 years earlier, in 1555, DeSoros had burned Havana, Cuba to the ground. I mean, he's that kind of dude. He's also the kind of pirate who's looking for revenge. You see, in 1565, a fellow French navigator named Jean Rabot was executed in the area that is now Florida. You see, around that time, there was a brewing conflict between the Catholics and Protestants, and Rabot was killed because he was Protestant. Now, fast forward five years, it's 1570, and here's this group of Jesuits sailing through the Canary Islands. They had been warned about violent pirates in the region, but the group's captain had all but ignored those warnings. When Desaurus spotted these boats, he and his crew chased them down. And as Desaurus boarded one of these ships, the Santiago, that's where he found the Catholic missionaries. An engraving from the period captures this moment well. It shows Desaurus hovering over the group of terrified Jesuits, his crew in the background boarding the ship amid the chaos, swords in hand. The image is titled Jacques Desaurus, a French privateer, massacre of Portuguese Jesuits missionaries to avenge the death of Jean Ribot. Desavedo reportedly told his fellow missionaries, Brothers, let us all prepare, because today we are going to populate heaven. And let's pretend that this is the last hour that we have to live. He then led the man in prayer near the main mass, reportedly holding a picture of the Virgin Mary as the chaos and fighting ensued around him. According to accounts, Desavedo was the first Jesuit attack. He was then thrown overboard along with the painting. The rest of the young Jesuits, some maimed, many battered, were later thrown into the ocean. One Jesuit did survive, the ship's cook, who lived to spread the tale of martyrdom. In 1854, almost three centuries after the incident, Pope Pius IX beatified the four martyrs of Brazil. However, it wasn't until 2000 that the crosses were commissioned. The Naval Museum of La Palma wanted to pay homage to the martyrs. They dropped the 40 stone crosses in a location where it's believed Ignacio de Azevedo and his fellow missionaries perished. And that is where you can dive down to see them today. To learn more about the sunken crosses of Malpique, check out the entry on Atlas Obscura. This next story is deep under the water, but not out in the ocean. It's in a harbor city off of Denmark. Michelle Cassidy has more. Once upon a time, there was a little boy named Hans. Hans lived in a harbor town with his mother, who was a washerwoman, and his father, who was a shoemaker. Little Hans loved to sit at his father's workbench and listen to stories about magic lamps, brave adventurers, and a whale so big that it could swallow a man whole. With his handmade puppets and wooden dolls, Hans performed these stories, and soon enough he started dreaming up tall tales of his own. When Hans was just 11 years old, though, his father died. His mother wanted him to forget his childish fantasies and get a job, but Hans believed that something grander was waiting for him. At 14, he convinced his mother that he should leave his hometown and set out for the capital. He found work as a singer, but lost it after his voice deepened. He tried to dance ballet, but 
just wasn't graceful enough. Instead, he went back to those tall tales that he had always loved. Soon, his writing caught the attention of a wealthy man who recognized that Hans had a special talent. With help from a benefactor, his stories spread far and wide, even reaching the king. That boy grew up to be a great storyteller, and people, especially children, loved his tales. There was the one about the mermaid who longed to leave the sea, the little match girl who saw visions inside of a flame, and the ugly duckling who grew up to become a beautiful swan. Many years later, by the time he died, Hans and his stories were known all around the world. And back in the harbor town where he had grown up, Hans's memory was everywhere. Even today, if you stand in just the right place on the docks and look out across the water, you might just see his face looking back at you. If you haven't figured it out already, this legendary storyteller is Hans Christian Andersen, the Danish author who wrote more than 150 fairy tales, including The Little Mermaid, The Princess and the Pea, The Emperor's New Clothes, the list goes on and on. Since his stories were first published in the mid-1800s, they have been shared around the world in many languages and adapted into basically every format you can imagine comic books and TV shows, and yes, animated Disney movies. Anderson was born in Odense, a city in southern Denmark. Today, his childhood home is a fantastic museum, and there are monuments to the author and his works all over the city. 2005 marked the bicentennial of Anderson's birth, and Denmark went all out to celebrate. There were commemorative coins and stamps, a massive gala, all kinds of performances. In Odense, they commissioned a large piece of artwork from a local sculptor named Jens Galshut. It was called the Storyteller's Fountain, and the design featured Anderson sitting at the edge of a pool of water, surrounded by hundreds of the characters from his stories. Now, it's worth noting that this charming and playful fountain was a little bit different from the kind of art that Gaushat is best known for. His large metal sculptures are often designed to call attention to human rights issues, and some of them are quite visceral. Gaushat once described the aim of his art as to show the grotesque and absurd in what we normally call reality. In a way, that goal wasn't all that different from what Anderson was doing. Many of his fairy tales dealt with themes of injustice and inequality, something that is especially apparent if you read the original versions. When Galshup began work on the fountain, things got off to a pretty good start. He completed a 10-foot-tall copper and bronze statue of Anderson that would serve as the centerpiece of the fountain. It was put on display outside of City Hall while the other elements were being completed, but every good fairy tale needs a villain. And in this case, along came a big, bad financial crisis. The statue sat outside City Hall for one year, then two, then six, 
as the money for the rest of the fountain slowly dried up. Galshut was disappointed, but he wasn't really one to sit idly by. In October of 2011, he arranged a public funeral for his piece of art. He hired a brass band to play while a horse-drawn carriage transported the sculpture. It was followed by a crowd filled with thousands of mourners drawn in by a promise of free beer and hot dogs. Once they reached the harbor, the statue was lifted into the air by a crane and then slowly submerged into the water until only Anderson's sculpted head peeked out above the surface. When he was asked about the location, Galshut told reporters that it would allow for Anderson to keep an eye on the mermaids. A few months later, in April, Galshut resurrected the figure, bringing it back to dry land for a combined celebration of Easter and Anderson's birthday. Afterward, the statue toured Denmark for a while before it was eventually sold to a golf club. That could have been the end of the story for this statue. But one morning, about a year after it was pulled out of the water, it reappeared back in that same place in Odens Harbor. Galshut had heard that people missed seeing Hans down there, so he had a reproduction installed. The statue is still there today, and if you go to Odens Harbor and stand in the right place in the docks and look down, you can see Hans Christian Andersen looking back at you. There's a slightly bemused expression on his face, and he's sitting in the watery perch where it seems like at least this version of him has found his happily ever after. Thank you to Jonathan and Michelle. Those were really wonderful, watery wonders uh, that you took us to, both off the coast of Spain and in Odense, Denmark. If uh, you are interested and want to know more about all of the incredible underwater wonders that are listed in Atlas Obscura, uh, visit atlasobscura.com, or we will put a link to our underwater places in the show notes. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. The production team includes... Doug Baldinger. Chris Naka. Camille Stanley. Willis Ryder-Arnold. Sarah Wyman. Baudelaire Seuss. Gianna Palmer. Tracy Samuelson. John Delore. Our technical director is... Casey Holford. And this episode was sound designed by... Manolo Morales. And mixed by... Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris. Wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher.